0: Hey, Drew. Hey, Callie. We are on episode number three. Can you believe it?
1: No. Uh, where does the time go?
0: I don't know, but I y'all are spoiling me, dear listeners. With all this great mail, uh, I yes, it is thrilling. Drew and I both get so excited to hear the little mail notification ding, so... Uh, But before we jump into reading some of those wonderful comments of yours, uh, today we are doing Enchanter. Uh, This is the 1983 fantasy adventure where we are a novice wizard who is wandering through the castle of the evil wizard Krill. And we have been tasked with basically bringing him down so he is our big boss fight at the end of this
1: that's right so armed only with a few spells and our wits we must overtake the nefarious warlock krill Um, and uh, fortunately for us we were up to it weren't we callie
0: we were and um, had a lot of fun doing it it's no surprise that this is one of your favorite games and um, easily, I'm sure, going to be one of my favorites um, when I reflect back after we get through the 36 titles ahead of us.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's a long road, but we'll get there. Um, and with that, I, I want to say that we do have some exciting mail. In fact, we got so much mail that we can't read the entire uh letters um from people uh, but we will read some excerpts and try to respond to your questions and as we will always try to respond to questions Um, i also always respond to emails that um, uh, listeners send so uh, if you ever just want to bounce something off of me or uh, try to get some infocom trivia uh, send me a note and um, if i know it i'll tell you Uh, But with that said, I think uh, Callie is starting this off.
0: Yeah, so um, the first excerpt is from David Reingold, and um, he's writing about plundered hearts and some thoughts about the female protagonist. So um, Reingold says, I only listened to the first half of this podcast as I would like to finish the game. And um, he said, I tried making a list of Infocom titles whose protagonists were explicitly male, including Hitchhiker's Guide, A Mind Forever Voyaging, Sherlock, The Riddle of the Crown Jewels, Arthur, uh, The Quest of Excalibur, um, among others. There were a few games whose packaging depicted a male character, but not necessarily the gameplay. Perhaps the most inventive use of gender was in Leather Goddesses of Phobos, where the restroom uh, user visited at the beginning determined how the game played out. So Drew, you want to share some more of your thoughts and background on other protagonists in the games?
1: Uh, Sure. Uh, So first of all, um, I've seen other critics say, and I tend to agree, that, If gender or race or uh, sexual orientation, if none of those things are specified, then they go to the default, and typically in our culture, the default is whoever has the most power, uh, which would be uh, a man in this case. Uh, But looking specifically at some of these games, I'd say uh, we know from a scene in Zork 3 with Lorne Dimwit Flathead that the protagonist the adventurer is male uh he's also represented as male in enchanter though he's probably not uh that adventure is probably not the canon adventurer that becomes a dungeon master for reasons we'll see later uh Starcross, i think that's wide open um even in the weasels art you only see the spaceship and spacesuit and when the builders of the artifact speak uh, they seem to be careful not to specify gender. So I think that one really is open. Uh, suspended, yes, it is wide open. I, I think one of the core ideas behind that game is uh, disembodiment or possibility of being a brain in a jar. So there being no body, uh, either gender doesn't matter or it can be chosen, uh, one or the other. Uh, suspended, I mean, Enchanter, uh, it really seems neutral throughout the trilogy, but then we get to beyond Zork and Yigale, uh, the old woman, refers to the Guildmaster, which is the protagonist, as he. So it took a while for them to get there, but uh, uh, I guess already closed the door on that one. Um, Infidel, it's hard to imagine a woman alone in the desert leading religiously devout people and physically assaulting one of them in front of the crew. Um, I just think the political and social realities of of that setting wouldn't allow for that. Uh, so we'd have to be in kind of an elsewhere worlds or fantasy type setting. Um, I didn't, I started to look for cutthroats, but I'll be honest with you, I can't stand cutthroats. I didn't want to dig through the source code or look at the feelies. I'm going to have to do that, of course, for uh, the gold machine write-up, which is coming very soon. So I'm just deferring that work until I have to do it. But check out the Cutthroats uh, essay when it's time, and I will definitely try to speak to that question. Um, That's just a handful. Um, I think sometimes you have to dig, but there often is a hint or even a straightforward uh, statement about gender.
0: All right. And I just really quickly, I meant to ask you, what's going on over at the Gold Machine blog since you just mentioned it?
1: Well, we're cruising along, Uh, just finished Planetfall, and as a Gold Microphone first, we're going to do the same game in Gold Machine that we do in Gold Microphone. So uh, Enchanter is uh, today, Friday, the 21st, and then Monday, we're going to start up our three-part essay series on Enchanter 2. So we'll see how that goes. Hopefully, I have enough to say that I don't repeat myself. (laughs) I guess we'll find out. Um,
0: I, have, I have a lot of confidence.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
0: Okay, so I think you're going to read from our next uh, writer.
1: Yeah, and I, I apologize. I, I may butcher this name. Um, Tunes Mukunda or Mukunda um, wrote to us. Uh, if if it meaning the scene in the bedroom with Lafond were a movie you'd probably have a scene where the antagonist does horrible things to other people to show what a baddie they are but in a game you need to fail to see all the drama inherent in the story a perfectly played optimal run of the game is missing a lot of the fun as fail states are often just as interesting and dramatic as success well i i couldn't agree more um i you know failure like i said last time uh Learning through deaf, deaf to me is just part of playing video games. Um, You know, I don't really subscribe to the theory that that's a problem. Uh, What bothered me about the bedroom scene was it, it seemed to be coupled with a lot of trial and error gameplay, which means having to repeat that scene over and over again. And it was really a cumulative effect. It wasn't just, oh, I failed and this happened. It's, oh, I'm failing again and again. And this keeps happening. That I I ultimately felt like that was taking a toll on me. Um, as for your other point, um, these days video games frequently have player protagonists that most males play and enjoy without thinking twice about. You can probably draw a pretty direct line from Lady Dimsford to Laura, Laura Croft, who is also a lady in the original lore. Uh, to that, I would say yes or no. Um, even today uh the question of sexualization of women in video games is a lively and active um topic and you know not all men are equally enlightened on that subject i remember i was in a discussion about uh street fighter uh just a couple of months ago and one of the posters said that uh, speaking of one of the characters her ass is part of the character (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you know i i think he didn't mean to say what he said i mean unfortunately i think he's right you know that uh woman character is uh mostly um her ass and <laughs> um so these things aren't dead and the fact that men like to play these characters doesn't really say that uh, men are more enlightened than they are in the 80s i assume many are but um I don't know that we should be too rosy in our estimates i mean even laura croft who you mentioned is kind of a mixed bag i i mean i think she's a great character she's intelligent she's independent you know she um is well educated um she's fine working alone she doesn't need a man to be successful you know she's in that sense it's a great characterization but you got to remember back when we first got the first tomb raider game that Laura Croft's boobs were anatomically impossible. Um, you know, a woman couldn't have boobs that size, and that—that uh, that of course is there for the male gaze. And I—I don't think we can really separate uh, that kind of um, that kind of ascetic presentation with the realities of the character. Unfortunately, we got them both to deal with at the same time and so i think this is going to be an ongoing uh issue in gaming for quite some time and you know i would also i guess say that lady dimsford unlike laura had no way to appeal to the main male gaze uh so it's there is a line from one to the other but i don't think it's as direct as as maybe we might hope um still excellent food for thought and a favorite subject of mine i i think talking about women in video games is uh important and valuable to think about
0: yes uh, lady Dimsford's I think we get to just see her ankles and her elbows <laughs> that's, that's right. about as sexy as we get um and and speaking of that we have a really lovely letter letter from Deborah in Germany and uh, she reflects a little bit about her first time playing plundered Heart when she was 15. Um, So Deborah writes, Dear Callie and Drew, thank you for your wonderful podcast. I just listened to the second episode about Plundered Hearts. In Germany back in the 80s, I might have been one of very few gamers, let alone women, who played text adventures in English language. I was absolutely thrilled when I received my first game. I think it was Lurking Horror. I played them all. But until today, my most favorite game of all is Plundered Hearts. I was 15 at the time, now 49, and I read a lot of romance novels, but being able to play it in a female role was stunning. The game was very well written with a feisty, brave young heroine I could easily identify with. Not anti-feminist at all, in my opinion. Quite the contrary. Gaming was a man's hobby back then. It was many years before the first female heroines like Laura Croft appeared on the market. The only other games I could think of who were written as well were, in my opinion, The Gabriel Knight and Phantasmagoria Games by Roberta Williams. Surprisingly, the puzzles were very good. I almost went crazy moving around on the pirate ship trying to stop the explosion. And I also loved the writing. You could imagine all the exotic places from the pirate ship to the exotic island of St. Sinistra where our villain John Lafitte, I think the name was, Um, And she writes how she kept the letter and banknote for many years, lurked to get all the power and riches, and the governor's daughter. Being a teenage girl myself, of course, I tried to seduce our azure-eyed hero, or were they green? In many different ways, because I hoped they had included some bodice ripper scenes. For instance, I tried to kiss Nicholas, to hug him, to undress him, to undress myself, to lie down on the bed with him. All I could think, of that a pirate captain might like to do in his spare time. But damn it! this all-too-proper game told me always, in a stern governess's tone, that my dear mama would have been shocked by my very unladylike and improper behavior. Or our also-too-proper hero just shook his head, looked somewhat disgusted, or gave me a stern, brooding look. I think he was just as shocked as poor dear mama. The game was so much fun. I so wish I could play those games again. As a Mac and iPhone user, I can't even play Lost Treasures on my iPhone anymore. I'm looking forward to listening to your other podcast. Love and greetings from Germany, Deborah. And uh, really quickly, Drew, you are—we're going to link in our show notes um, to a post you have uh, over at Gold Machine about ways to access these games as a Mac user. Is that true?
1: Uh, yes. Um there's a blog post from when I started this project called a note on resources and methods. Um, besides giving sort of background on how the gold machine project operates, I also, uh, link to resources for, uh, programs and documents and, uh, even, uh, game files for how to play these games. So, uh, be sure and check that out. I'll link it to the show notes. David, I know you asked about that too, um, so uh, hopefully that'll get y'all um, off the ground. If you need specific instructions or help, uh, you can send me. Uh, probably be better to email or send me a message, private message through the WordPress site. Uh, this, <laughs> I only want to be so explicit about um, how to do this uh, if if you understand my meaning. Um, but yeah, hopefully that'll that'll be a big help to everyone. I also have it pinned on my Twitter feed right now, uh, just because people have asked about it. I wanted to get get the word out there. So uh, thanks for that, Deborah. I I'm 47, and I love hearing these personal recollections. Um, you know, I was probably I was probably in fifth grade uh, when I played Enchanter. Either fifth or sixth grade, no fourth or fifth grade when I played Enchanter, and so. Um, these games certainly have a lot of sentimental value for me, and I love hearing about what these games mean to other people i should I should also warn you, um, I'm surprised I didn't say this at the beginning. We live in kind of an animal kingdom. there's there's a bunch of birds flying around a room, closed room in this house, and then we have three cats.
0: I just I'm holding one who. Tried to knock over the microphone. Just
1: now. <laughs> yeah, Moxie—that's her name. She's a little uh, black kitten with a little white tuft of fur uh, on her chest. Uh,
0: Which fun fact? That's called a locket marking. Marking. So she's a locket cat.
1: Yeah. So our little locket cat wanted to knock over the microphone, and from time to time they like to scratch the post and uh, maybe talk to us a little bit. So <laughs> if you hear if you hear them, you know that's what it is, and we've thought about ways to prevent things like that from happening. And the reality is cats do whatever they want and we're not going to lock them in the bathroom. Just do a podcast. So, uh, if, if we're lucky, we'll get a cat sighting, uh, during this or any other episode.
0: All right. And with that being said, we're going to hear from our uh, last, uh, writer and we hear from Blake again. Hey Blake.
1: Yeah, Blake. Good to hear from you. Um, I'm going to read an excerpt of of the message and I, uh, what I gravitated toward was I am also impressed by the amount of interaction with non-player characters. Uh, Blake is talking about Plundered Hearts, of course. In- interaction makes the characters more realistic compared to other Infocom games. For example, you can talk to your father in Plundered Hearts but not have a conversation with Krill in Enchanter. And that's very true. Krill, Krill doesn't... Um, not much on the words he's well he talks a That's lot true. but he's not interested in what you have to say no. he's kind of a stock uh stock villain who's just uh you know he's got a deep voice and he's calling you a worm and all that but he you can't ask krill for directions or you know krill give me the scroll um and uh it's more like i would say it's more it's almost right. like Part of a scene, the scenery instead of actual interaction in Enchanter, and we'll talk about situations where we wished we could have uh, had a little more interaction uh, when we get to that point. Um, but thanks for that. Thanks for that observation, Blake. Uh, you finally said at the end you uh, hearing that there are four endings in Plundered Hearts is interesting. I have only found two of them, one and four. In summary. Plundered Hearts is one of my favorite Infocom games because of the plot. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you, <laughs> you, brought All of you probably remember how enthusiastic we were uh, about Plundered Hearts. I was kind of shamelessly standing Amy Briggs. Um, and I don't want to back away from that. I'm still standing Amy Briggs. We're fans. We are fans. We're super fans. So uh, thanks for everybody who wrote in. And we hope to hear... Um, from some of you listeners next time. Um, Again, I'll always respond to messages and um, we'll also read at least part of your message on the air um, because Callie and I both get a huge kick out of mail.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, hands down, one of the best parts of this podcast experience together.
1: And, of course, the other good part of this experience is talking about Infocom games, and it is time to get started on that. As you know, The game is Enchanter. It's one of my all-time favorites. Maybe my all-time favorite. I kind of had that feeling as I was replaying it this time that maybe this is my all-time favorite Infocom game. We'll have to see if that changes through the playthrough. But anyway, without further ado, let's get cracking.
0: Okay, so it is no secret at all that today's game, Enchanter, is one of Drew's most favorite games and i remember way back i don't know last year when he was talking about starting the uh well he he didn't even have the gold machine blog yet he was just saying you know i think i want to do something about these infocom games um enchanter was uh the first game that he told me back about that i think really has pulled him um into this into this project, out of his love. So, um, in the spirit of sharing, since we just heard from uh, some readers, I would like to just ask Drew about um, why why he loves this game so much, and maybe how old how old were you, Drew, when you first played it?
1: Well, I was only nine when Enchanter came out, so I'm I'm pretty sure it was a couple of years after release that I first played it, uh, but it. Really lined up with a lot of my interests. I was a big uh, fan of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons and uh, owned several of those books, rule books. And I also was a big fan of uh, Tolkien in general. Um, I can remember fifth grade. I I finished all of them. I started reading them in fourth grade, but fifth grade I was done with all of them, and I loved them a lot. And so, seeing this kind of iteration upon this orc universe where this magic is brought in uh just seemed so amazing and at the time being able to cast spells on so many things uh even if they didn't help you solve puzzles some of it was just goofing around uh it really rewarded that kind of experimentation and uh, it it rapidly became my favorite infocom game
0: uh, would you daydream about it in school? Like, I can't wait to get home. And like, I wonder what happens if I go into the the gallery. Or, did you have any day, school daydreams about the game?
1: Yeah, of course. I did that for all the games, all the Infocom games, especially the ones that took me a long time. I think it took me two years or something to beat deadline. Not playing every day, but leaving and then suddenly thinking of something at school or whatever and uh just being so eager to get back home when i could try what i thought of uh so while i was in that process of playing enchanter that definitely was a thing i think especially uh for two puzzles that we'll talk about i'll I'll identify them when we get there but there were two in particular that required a lot of uh, extracurricular thinking so to speak
0: so needless to say uh this is a very special episode uh today. And um, as you may have gathered from the conversation and Drew's men- mention of Tolkien and Dungeons and Dragons, today is a another fantasy game. And we are um going to the seaside world um of the Zork universe, kind of. We're above ground mostly, and um so we return to this place um we are a novice enchanter that's who uh, our protagonist is and we have been chosen um for a very grand challenging adventure i believe um you want to say anything else about the the setup of the game
1: well i think um yeah that's the deal kind of like in uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, which needed a lowly hobbit that would escape Sauron's detection. Uh, the protagonist in this game is a novice enchanter that presumably can escape an evil warlock's attention, um, the warlock Krill. So there's a similar vibe going into that, and uh, you really are an amateur. You've got a very uh, <laughs> slim spellbook or mostly empty spellbook as uh, the bro tag starts the game and they increasingly grow in competence and knowledge as the game progresses.
0: Yeah. And I will have a video. We don't have an actual like unwrapping of this game, but we do have a folio edition that we will uh, take a, a video of the different components of the feel the feelies, the manual. Um, and it's just a gorgeous design. And I the manual itself and um, I really invested in trying to like do this game alone <laughs> uh, for a while it it sets you up into that mind space of the novice uh, apprentice and I felt kind of the the weight of the task that's before me to try to overtake this uh war I want to call him a warlord but the the warlock krill who has created this imp- uh, oppressive environment and um, the manual itself on the cover has this wonderful script and it's a note um, from the guild masters. And I find this really moving. It says, be it declared by the guild masters of this land that those who unseal this capsule, be they our descendants or born of a civilization that has exceeded our own, should know of the skills and craftsmanship we have achieved. Our works represent the best our hands and minds can create. So, um, I don't know. I just, I found that very moving to be tasked uh, with um, living up to the what we've inherited through this capsule.
1: Yeah, well, I'll talk about it more when we do the video, but... Those of you who've been paying attention to gold machine probably realize that I think, uh, the folio releases are superior uh, to the gray box releases in pretty much every way other than ability to fit on a shelf. Uh, Callie talked about the manual. One of the things I love is the way the manuals are written as if they're in universe. Um, they aren't that, that kind of separate, uh, you know, font on white text that, uh, you know became a staple of uh the gray box releases uh, so the manuals and everything else are more interesting and this enchanter box uh there is just no way a gray box could ever reproduce the beauty of this package mm-hmm. um this one i got for pretty cheap and it shows it's not in the best shape but i don't think people realize the uh the way this thing is put together and how mm-hmm. um how truly lovely uh the fully edition of Enchanter is.
0: Absolutely. I had, uh, you know, when Drew talked about this game a long time ago, I saw like just online images of the cover and I didn't realize until it arrived in the mail that it's actually a die cut kind of like starburst. So, you know, you can see through, I don't know how to describe it, almost like a cutout of sorts, um, but you actually open it and it's, it's truly cut out. I'm not capturing it very well. You want to help fill it in.
1: Um, well, it's hard to explain, really. I think uh, the best thing you do will be just show you the video and we'll link it in the show notes and hopefully that'll help you get you get a sense of what we find so appealing about it.
0: yeah, it's like you're opening the spark of a of a of a spell so pretty, pretty, truly magical if we do say so ourselves. Okay, so um, it was released in 1983. Um, anyone want to guess what the top grossing film of the year was? Return of the Jedi. So uh, just a little bit of con- contextual flavor there to take us back to the 80s. Uh, it was implemented by Mark Blank and Dave Lebling.
1: And they, they were the two... Um of the original MIT implementers that continued to write games for Infocom. Um, Tim Anderson was also at Infocom, but he did not author games anymore. Um, but uh, you know, we know Mark Blank from Zork 3 and Deadline and Dave Lebling from Zork 2 and Starcross. Uh, so uh, really great um, portfolio there between the two of them. Um, we kind of, I think we'll start to see this emergence of Mark Blank is kind of a behind the scenes, technical innovator and, uh, Dave Lebling as a person who continuously tries to hone, uh, his craft of game development. And a hallmark of that, if we follow Dave Lebling's career is the way he tries to make mazes that, unlike the Zork 1 maze, don't require Bruce, brute force and mapping. Instead, they are puzzles that require solutions. Uh, Starcross has a very good example of that, which I won't spoil, because who knows if you played it or not. Um, but this game has another fantastic uh, example of innovating mazes, and I, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to talking about it.
0: And on the note of uh, blank and leveling, another way uh, to the point that Drew said about how the folio are in universe with the game um, on the cover text of the manual, it even mentions them as a uh, print, print makers and um, specialist or craftsmen of a movable a special movable type. So it just it's really clever the way that uh, that their names are mentioned and talked about. Um, as as part of the guild who have prepared this as creators.
1: And also just another fun example of trying to do in-universe packaging. So even the about the author section is treated as an in-universe text.
0: Mm-hmm. I think there's something about like give uh, a wolf some nettle. Or, and the examples are great too. I like how the the showing you how to use the different um, spells and navigate the game their examples just provide another bit of of humor that we all love infocom for
1: so i talked a little bit about the story already and i'm not sure we can go much further uh, to reiterate this is a novice enchanter they are roaming what Seems to be a pretty decimated land because of the influence of this evil warlock, and you you traverse this kind of abandoned uh, realm and approach a very ominous castle. And the entire game takes place uh, in the castle and its immediate vicinity. And um, you through exploring this environment, you find opportunities to uh, grow in power, which we'll talk about right after this with the magic system and eventually um, basically master the entire environment and hopefully, hopefully defeat the warlock krill.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So uh, contrasted with Plundered Hearts, which as we talked about in the previous episode, is very plot based. And a lot of you who wrote in um, spoke about the joy of how that plot Really kept you engaged, and all the other characters on the set with you. Um, in this game, you're you're mostly alone, um, and it the plot is not exactly driving you forward. I think it's a really uh, the mechanics of the game, the use of magic in the game. Um, I think is what, at least in my playthrough, kept me moving. What What about you, Drew?
1: Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, This is, in my opinion, the best Zork game.
0: Uh, (laughs) Ooh, disgust. (laughs) uh,
1: It it does what Zork games do, and it does it in a better and more interesting way. Um, Once again, we have an open map. You can visit almost every uh, location immediately. Uh, There are a couple that are held back from the player but you can you can wander this map looking for things to do and um you know that sounds a lot like zork i think the difference here like you said the the progression in this game is uh the progression of the protagonist's uh competence and and prowess with magic and that's that's an element missing from from the zork games now there is a little bit of a You know, if you get so many points, you can beat the thief. But that's all kind of in the background. It's not something that gives the player any immediate satisfaction, uh, nor does it have bearing beyond the uh, fight with the thief. So this this is a very different thing. This is something you're aware of the whole time. You can see it. You can see practical evidence of your progress through the Mm -hmm. game. You know, your progress has actual utility within the game. You're able to use that progress. Um, and so it does a lot of what Zork does, but I think, uh, it's satisfactions are, are more, uh, immediate and profound.
0: Yeah. It's absolutely no secret as the manual identifies that, um, you are a student and you are going to be learning magic and using it throughout the game. So the finding of spells and as the manual tells you how to do it, like, uh, write this a spell to write the spell in your spell book which you start the game with um, and gathering this list of spells that you can use and growing your capabilities like drew said that way there's actual literal evidence of this progress as you move
1: right even without looking at the score you know if you're making progress or not um, like,
0: have you found spells? Yeah. It, have you been using them?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If, if you're finding more spells, you're making progress. Um, the score is really just a way to know, I think, if you're ready for the final fight or not. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't mean much more than that. Um,
0: and there's really not a secret. Like, obviously, the final fight is going to be if you can defeat Krill. So, there's, in one way, there's really not a lot of spoilers in terms of what the story is unlike with plundered hearts there were many spoilers uh related to the to the narrative
1: yep absolutely um and i guess just to talk for a minute about that magic system i uh, if you haven't played one of these games uh basically you have a spell book and like in dungeons and dragons you can memorize spells and then cast them um And just like in Dungeons and Dragons, you can find scrolls and, you know, have them inscribed into your spell book. A scroll is a one-use item, but if you can write it to your book, you can use it again and again. Now, there are in the game, I think, three spells that are so complex that you don't have enough power to write them in your book. And so those are single-use items to be used judiciously. But for the most part, you're just finding scrolls, getting them into your book, and then trying, trying to find the problems that can be resolved by those spells.
0: And I love it. Whenever you do memorize a spell, it's like using your best study habits. You memorize the spell. And I'm like, oh, yes, let's be a good student. I mean, one word that I would use to describe this game is very sincere. And I mean that with so much tenderness and love. Like this protagonist, or at least how I was stepping into the world and and prepared to enter this world through the manual. I just wanted to do my best and I I just really did.
1: (laughs) Yeah. This, this, this protagonist, although we don't really get a sense of their personality is um, I think if you throw yourself into the world, you don't really need uh, the narrator to make editorial comments about how this protagonist feels. Of course they're in over their head, you know, of course, um, they're just trying to, like you said, do their best. Uh, you can see the power of Krill before you enter his castle. And so you know um, what you're up against. And um, you also know uh, that you don't have any of what you need to defeat him <laughs> at the beginning of the game. Um, I should say, since we're talking about the protag, one, one thing about him. It is a him, and I, I say this because uh, in Moriarty's Beyond Zork, which uh, takes place really at the same time Spellbreaker does, that's the third game in the Enchanter uh, trilogy, uh, a character refers to uh, that protagonist as he and him. So uh, it's never acknowledged in the game, but uh, Beyond Zork, which is a canon Zork game, Ah uh, does specifically uh, refer to the enchanter as he and him,
0: so he and him, our player, has a lot to has big shoes to step into. And uh, not only are not only does he have to manage this magic and be a good student and memorize the spells, Uh, There's also some just basic life management (laughs) that happens as well. So, you want to say anything about that?
1: I think you're probably referring to eating and sleeping.
0: Yes, that water and (laughs) the
1: bread. The bread.
0: (laughs) Ooh, I I really can't say anything about the bread, but word to the wise if you haven't played it, water and bread. Think about those things. (laughs)
1: It's kind of a jerk move because you (laughs) the you run out of uh, water before you run out of bread. So you're um, you actually have to leave and get more water while you're still eating the bread you have. And uh, it's I I just wrote about this in Planetfall. Um, Planetfall was the first game to require um, eating and sleeping. uh, And what we call now, not very affectionately, hunger timers and sleep timers, and, and most people really hate them. Uh, if we get to Planetfall, I'll, we'll, I'll talk about why I think that's the only Infocom game where eating and sleeping makes sense, but it serves no real purpose. Eating, eating and drinking have no purpose, as, so far as I can tell, in Enchanter. The sleeping is a little different. Uh, there's some hints uh, built around that. Um, but, uh, it's really just busy work to have to walk out there and fill up the jug again.
0: I mean, I guess if it served any purpose for me, it was like, oh, we're, we're, we gotta stay alive. (laughs) It just kind of reminded me of how, what a fragile situation I was in. I was like, I got, I gotta eat, I gotta sleep, I gotta do all this stuff and I gotta kill the, or I gotta defeat the, uh, the big bad. So, oh. Okay, so just if you have any thoughts, that could be a little slip in prompt we add here about what is it, hunger management and time management um, in this game or any others. Um, I know I didn't really enjoy trotting myself back to the brook to get water when I really wanted to wake up and go do the next thing, (laughs) but it's a small map. I think we haven't said that yet. It it is a it is a small map, relatively speaking. So uh, the trip really isn't too far.
1: Yeah. Well, I still don't like it. No. <laughs> no, I
0: didn't either. I was like, what is this?
1: Um. I guess you know, if you were to write us, and again, like I said earlier, I just love hearing any kind of personal reflection of of this game. Uh, but if, uh, as far as something specific goes, uh, reactions to the magic system, or, um, you know, I called this the best Zork game. And originally it, they thought it'd be Zork 4. Um, you know, do, what do you think of this as a Zork game? How does it fit into the Zork universe? Um, we've played another game in the Zork universe, Wishbringer. And, I, you know, maybe this is a spoiler, but I'm comfortable saying. That basically everything the Enchanter does is cooler than the Wishing Stone.
0: Like, <laughs> I mean, there's actually magic in this game. Which, that was our. We we also love Wishbringer. If you haven't, go check it out. If you haven't listened to that episode, but mm, this game actually has magic, and Wishbringer just wishes you thought it had magic. <laughs> oh, oh, the Wishing Stone the wish list, wishing soon
1: <laughs> i mean we do love wish bringer yeah. so this is all set out of love <laughs> I mean, come on,
0: don't tempt people with magic and not get to use it and i think that just i'm saying that to to further express how joyful it is to use magic in this game um i don't think that there's much more to say about this being in the zork universe on the n- non-spoiler side of things um most of discussion of that I think will be a little spoilery so uh, any last words uh, to an encouragement please go play the game that's that's my big thing it's it's really a delight go be a good student um, and I think the game will will reward you so that's my review
1: um, just want to remind listeners that if you're interested in tools to play these games or look at the packaging uh, I have links. Uh, To uh, some resources for you in the blog post A note on resources and methods And again, that'll be in the show notes
0: Okay, the time has come We are about to enter the spoilery segment of the episode
1: We're drawing the line here So don't step over it Unless you want to have this game completely ruined for you We're going to talk about puzzles We're going to talk about the ending Uh, there's nothing that isn't on the table.
0: All right. We're setting the table for dinner. (laughs) Spoiler dinner. (laughs) Okay. It's time. Let's do it. Three, two, one. Spoiler. Time. So, Zork Universe, you made this, what I think might be, I don't know, for listeners, a provocative statement that this is the best Zork game. The most Zork of Zork game. What did you say? Tell me again.
1: I think best. Um, it's a better Zork game than the Zork trilogy. Um, for reasons I already said. Now, I think a lot of people think Spellbreaker is better than Enchanter. And I do not agree. I think there are some great moments in Spellbreaker. But one thing you'll learn from me, if you haven't heard it already, is that I don't like inorganic puzzles. So the idea... Of well, the cube puzzle, I'll say in Spellbreaker, that that to me just seems like something you'd get out of a games magazine or something, and I just I don't enjoy that kind of thing. I enjoy things that feel like they're part of the story and world. Uh, so Spellbreaker has a couple of misses on the puzzle front for me personally, um, and I like all the all the puzzles in Enchanter.
0: Yes, and we are um, about to jump into some of our, our favorite puzzles of the game. Um, and I think, well, one place to begin is that this game is clearly in the Zork universe because we get to see none other than the adventurer himself wandering around the, the mirror room. I don't know. I kind of want to like throw out a contest of like, what do you... <laughs> Like, adventurer memes. Like, who do you think the adventurer would be? I picture kind of like a Bob dylan looking like, hey, I'm wandering through the mirror room. Like, not that they're anything alike in the personalities, but I just like picturing the adventurer as, like, 70s chill aesthetic. So, <laughs> but anyway, whatever. The, the adventurer is in this game. How cool is that? Instead of being it, being him, we get to have a third-person interaction with him.
1: Yeah, uh seeing the adventure is a lot of fun and um I should say he again this is a he um we're told uh is really sort of a parody of the adventurer as they are in Zork 1 um so picking up things everywhere and you know occasionally some of the jokes in in Zork are kind of placed in a like a third person perspective like uh the adventurer tries to eat the sword which uh, some of you will know if you do that in zork one it says i don't think the sword would agree with you um <laughs> so there, there's a lot of that kind of stuff in here and, and it's pretty funny it, it shows they can uh, leveling and blank and laugh at themselves if nothing else
0: oh my gosh absolutely um and in the dream, so, of course, like, the dreams are used to provide hints um, as you play. And the adventurer is referred to as a cartoon.
1: Yeah, a cartoonish figure, I think.
0: Uh, yeah, again, so another way, like Drew said, to sort of, um, it's it's the adventurer, but it's not, like, all rise for the adventurer. It's like, hey, it's that guy. So <laughs> he shows up in a, a, a charming way.
1: Yeah. I think this is like a Zork one adventurer that never makes it past the dam. Uh, <laughs> Cause there are a lot of those out there, right? Um, this, this certainly isn't, uh, the second dungeon master <laughs> adventurer.
0: Oh my goodness. So, yeah, I mean, you see the laughter that this game is already creating. Um, and so let's go ahead and I think it's a little out of order for our little planning list, but I would love for you to go ahead and take us uh, while we're talking about the adventure to um, the the puzzle involving him.
1: Yeah, this is one of my favorite puzzles in enchanter. Um, you get some magic uh, to summon. you can summon a person and this is another one of those joke things. You can also summon krill, who says some kind of suitably, kind of mustache twirling villain talk, or you can summon Bell Boz who's disappointed, or you can summon the the implementers. In other words, uh, Dave Lebling and Mark Blank, and (laughs) they talk a little bit about uh, strange behavior in the program. Uh, But what you... Is this a bug? Yeah, (laughs) is this a bug? And and then uh, Lebling fixes it and disappears. Uh, but the 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 purpose of this spell is to summon the adventurer. And, you know, like Callie said, you have this dream where a cartoonish figure opens a door and...
0: A simple wood door.
1: A simple wooden door. And while we haven't seen a simple wooden door, we certainly have seen a cartoonish fig- figure, and that's the adventurer. <laughs> what what we've ultimately figured out is that um, there's... A pretty over-the-top dangerous door. Uh, Let me, uh, I'll read part of this description. A guarded door. A more incongruous place than this would be difficult to believe. The room itself is nothing more than a small room at the base of the northeast tower with a narrow passageway entering from the west. Stepping in front of you to the north, however, is a door surpassing anything you could have imagined. For starters, its massive lock is wrapped in a dozen six-inch thick iron chains. In addition, a certain five-headed monster sporting razor-sharp spears for tongues seems to be embedded within its heavy oak frame. One is almost embarrassed to mention the gargoyles spewing flame and sulfurous ash which ornament either side of the door, or the ninety-seven slimy groping tentacles which taunt you ever closer to certain death. A sign floating serenely in front of the door and glowing hideously in purple letters offers the following rude understatement. Don't bother. So, (laughs) yeah. Well, I mean, that's one of the problems of the game is how do we get through this door? Um, And you, one thing we might notice is that this door is kind of cartoonish too. Mm
0: -hmm. It's so
1: over the top. And,
0: a great example of like you might even, what is it, be embarrassed to mention the gargoyles, like Drew said earlier about it's not taking itself. The writers lovely, are not taking themselves too seriously. They are deliberately cutting slices of cheese.
1: Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Um, and um, if you lead the adventure into this room, uh, we get this text the adventurer glances around the room in a businesslike way and makes a few notes on his map so, that, so there's kind of a disconnect between what the protagonist is seeing at this door and what the adventurer seems to be seeing and ultimately you know what i realized and what the player has to realize is that the adventurer isn't seeing anything special here uh, this is an illusion that targets uh, magic users, and the solution is just to ask the adventurer to open the door. <laughs> um, and there's there's some more funny text that I you know it's a lot to read, but I, I think it's so awesome. I just have to one. do Who it. Who
0: doesn't want to hear about like human-sized rats?
1: <laughs> As you motion toward the monstrous door, the adventurer follows the imaginary line which proceeds thence from your outstretched arm. The seemingly fearless adventurer shrugs and walks purposefully toward the door, ignoring all harm to his person in the form of knives, tentacles, and molten lead. As three buckets of the latter pour over his head, he casts you a perplexed look. Did you try the doorknob, he asks, as twenty-seven knives delicately skewer him. Before you can answer, he reaches for one of the gargoyle heads, which, by sheerest coincidence, has just flooded him in red-orange flame, and turns it gently. I think it's unlocked, he says, stoically ignoring the host of human-sized rats which feed on his incinerated torso. His left hand, broken and bloodied, pulls at the gargoyle head. I'm going on ahead, he cries, opening a simple wooden door. Wooden door? You rub your eyes for a moment and look again as he goes through it. Yes. Just a plain wooden door.
0: I love it. I think next time I'm like entering meltdown phase, I'm just going to read this passage and be like, it's just a plain wooden door. Like really leveling and blank have provided us a meditation for times of duress. Like you think you're seeing the end of the world, but actually it's just a plain wooden door. You can open it. All right. So find your inner adventure meditation guru and we will. We will make our way. Uh, so lots of fun. Um, so cool when I was playing this, and I was like, "Wait, the adventures here!" Because <laughs> um, as we mentioned, you know, it's not a populated cast, um, unlike Plundered Hearts. So you're quite alone, and um, having this encounter with the adventurer uh, is is very both comic and uh, it's a special continuity with the other games.
1: Yeah um just a couple of you know other pieces of zork uh, you can see a portrait of the wizard of forbaz in the gallery
0: yeah and i have to read this brief description so i was like yes it's forbaz so um so it has a little caption about him that says the wizard of forbaz was a former member of the circle of enchanters but he was removed for forgetfulness border on senility the lively wit of his youth, having been replaced by a semi-sadistic mischievousness, coupled with an inability to pronounce words beginning with anything other than the letter F, he was retired, in quotes, to a small unoccupied corner of the great underground empire, hopefully out of harm's way. <laughs> Again, it's really funny uh, for these creators, like how they're writing about him, like, "Oh, we hope he's, we hope he's okay." Uh, it... <laughs> not a lot of love for for buys
1: um i guess we can talk a little bit more about about spoilers now and and puzzles
0: yeah um so one of my favorite puzzles well first of all stay away from the temple um unless you have like practiced your so i always play this like okay i gotta memorize so there are a couple of things that like as you play it again and again with any of these games like they become you know second nature but like okay with the spells make sure you have that spell management stuff down like don't just you need to nesto the spell in your spell book so you have it and also find key places to use those spells as well so (laughs) All right, but my favorite spell, and this goes along with the turtle puzzle, which you can talk to animals in this game. We should take a moment and acknowledge how wonderful that is. You can speak to animals in this game using the spell in N-I-T-F-O-L. And um, you go to the beach, where you come across this radiantly rainbowed, rainbow-shelled turtle. And um, the turtle's like, hey, are you going to help take care of this wizard problem? And you can ask the turtle to follow you. Uh, So the turtle will actually leave the beach and follow you into the engine room. Uh, Drew, just as a quick moment, what what did it feel like when you were like, I can... The turtle's gonna be my friend. Did you remember that moment when you were a kid?
1: Yeah, turtle is awesome. Um, it's kind of a bummer you can't uh, talk to him more because mm-hmm. um, I would love to talk to the turtle, um, but <laughs> um, the little bit he does say is pretty great. I love it when he says, "Are you gonna do something about that warlock?" Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I know. I I was like, I want to talk to you. I want to be like, yes. Yes, friend turtle, I am. But you, like Drew said, it is kind of sad that there are, are limitations to what you can say to the turtle. I did try to give him a few things, but he's just not really interested. Like I was like, here, do you want this uh, black candle or do you want this? I was like, let me give you a really nice egg. Like maybe you'll like the jeweled egg to go with your rainbow shell. Y'all are both gems. But no, he he wasn't really interested. He just wants you to take care of this warlock. uh problem. (laughs) So, um, yeah, the turtle, lots of fun. So we go to the engine room where the turtle shell is not just beautiful. Uh, the shell is a very useful, um, tool in helping you overcome, um, the, the hammer and the spear trap, um, in the engine room. So, I will now read you from the engine room. So here we go. The room is filled with noise, crashing and smashing, gurgling of water, grinding of gears, and horrible screeching of metal. Huge devices of obscure purpose provide these effects. The most notable is a huge hammer that smashes continually against the stone floor. It makes any crossing of the room a dangerous enterprise. The whole construction brings to minds the wor- the words infernal machine. Far off to the southeast is another room. You can barely make out something on the floor of that room. It might be a scroll. But from here, you can't tell for sure. And of course, the turtle's following you at that moment. So you're about to go in there and it says pretty steep stairs for a turtle friend. But if you say so, and um, you... You send the turtle to go get the scroll using the XX spell, which is like a, a booster. It accelerates the turtle's speed. Um, and it. so fortunately, the turtle makes it to the other side safely. So the hammer, um, he makes it through the hammer. But as, as you know, if you've probably died, like I did, trying to go through this, uh, the hammer is not the only threat. You then have these these spears that fly at you once you cross it so um the turtle gets the scroll and then it comes back and it zips across the engine room dodging the giant hammers and gears suddenly on the return trip he sets off a trap and sharp spills fly spears fly at him from all directions but they bounce harmlessly off his shell he avoids one last crash of the huge hammer, but even at his speed, it's a near thing. With one more burst of speed, he reaches you safely. Crash. A huge hammer smashes against the stone floor. Their turtle drops a brittle scroll at your feet. Not bad, huh? And then you say, thanks, turtle. And um, the turtle's like, glad to be of help. I'm going to go back to the beach. So a uh, really clever mission with your turtle ally.
1: Yes, our turtle friend. Um, one of the cooler parts of the game, for sure. Um, the other spell, and for me, the best spell uh, or best puzzle in the game, doesn't actually involve magic, but not casting spells. Uh, your prize when you have the adventurer open that, you know, illusion door is a map and a pencil, and at first I know I looked at it and I didn't really know what it was. Um, but then I found that book in the library about the unseen terror,
0: the dusty book,
1: the dusty book. And apparently the unseen terror was a horrible, invisible entity that just was, was so evil and so powerful, uh, that it seemed like they wouldn't be able to destroy it. And what they realized, they they couldn't destroy it or defeat it, but they could trap it.
0: You're talking about the Circle of Enchanters.
1: Yes, back back in days of old. And so what they did was they put a powerful scroll in this little uh, series of rooms, of identical rooms, and then they sealed the monster in there. Now, after mapping what is... Called the tr- translucent rooms. It's very maze like. This is another example of Dave Lebling trying to make a maze that isn't a maze. So it, it looks like a maze. But when you look at the map you found, you realize that it's a map of this area. Only one thing's different. There's a room that is not connected to any other rooms in the corner of the maze. Um, and you know, if you, if you put it all together, looking at this map and reading that legend, you realize that there's a horribly evil creature in that sealed room along with a very powerful scroll. And the goal is to separate the evil creature from that scroll without turning them loose. And you do that by drawing and erasing lines on the magic map you found. And you only get to draw either two or three lines and you and same you're limited in racing as well so you've got to kind of plan it out and then seal everything off
0: it's like the worst test taking pencil ever like i don't know if anyone had anxiety like in you know school about like oh my pencil is like sharp enough for this test well this one isn't like you, <laughs> you get like very limited options uh you, so you have to be strategic um about it's not a forgiving pencil.
1: No. Yeah, you definitely have to think things through. Um but uh it's one of those puzzles where um after I figured it out and did it, it was like I was very uh very satisfied. Uh, it was just a great feeling of and uh you know, Infocom's best maze to date mm-hmm. without a doubt.
0: Yeah, I mean, it just it's visually very fair, like you can look at it once you get the map and it makes a lot of sense. Um, the tool feels adequate, even though there's, you know, the built-in tension of having limited moves with the pencil. Um, and and you feel like, oh, I really, you know, you can kind of see the whole map at once or the whole puzzle at once which is exciting because you can make your plan for which rooms to connect at first i just want to back up when we heard about the um the unseen terror i'm like oh it's a grew like there's a big bad grew (laughs) but no this is this is beyond a grew this is truly a i believe them when they say it's a terror terrible terror
1: another cool moment and I guess before we go much further, something that I've seen again and again with uh, reviewers, with Jimmy Maher uh, and uh, other uh, kind of reflections on Enchanter is the fact that it's mostly comical and it has a very out of place uh, section, which is the sacrifice. The one, and that's the scene we're about to talk about. Um, I guess I'd like to hear people's takes on that too. In my mind, um, there are lots of funny things, uh, because it's Zork, um, but I don't think you ever really get to forget how serious things are. Um, like I said, you know, the, you go through a village that's abandoned, they're fleeing krill, um, so this is a wasteland now, and another thing, uh, you notice Uh, every day is actually longer or shorter. Um, that is daylight lasts a shorter period of time and night or darkness lasts longer. And if you stretch out your food and you know, only eat when you're about to die and all this, you just stretch it out as far as you can. Um, what you discover is that. Krill sets the world in permanent darkness and there is no day anymore. And that's the end of the game, uh, which is pretty serious, I think. And um, there's a lot of, you know, scary stuff. You know, the the temple is very scary. has those um, scary servants that are running around. Um, you know, I, I never really got a sense that this was um, um, a lighthearted game. I think there's a lot of light hearted moments, um, and a lot of that is just based on the Zork house voice, Infocom's voice at the time, Um, but I feel like it's a good balance, actually, um, where it's not, um, you know, one thing in Zork, if you start to look at it as a colonialist or post-colonial work, um, a lot of the jokes feel, um, you know, inappropriate in a way, you know, inappropriate in a way we enjoy, but um, you know, they're making light of what is ultimately this, um, you know, completely dead area where all these people have fled or died. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, grave, a mass grave in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, Zork has that kind of push and pull to it. Um, but to me, that's a much more natural fit here in this, this world. And I never really felt like, boy, this is taking me out of it. This is so serious. Um, you know, because I mean just just something as simple as the days getting shorter, which you know maybe a lot of players don't notice. Mm-hmm.
0: um, yeah, I didn't that's that's yeah thanks for telling me about it.
1: yeah, um it's it's there. It doesn't affect gameplay at all, and I if you're not um looking at it, one thing you'll notice is like how long it gets longer and longer, the time before it gets night and the time you go to bed. That period of time just gets longer as, as the game goes by. Um, but that's a really roundabout way to get to um, what we're going to talk about now, which is the temple area. And it's um, fascinating for a couple of reasons.
0: All right. So the temple, I died there more times than I want to admit. Uh, I was a little stubborn. I kept like going through the courtyard, entering the temple, um, got put in a cell and then got sacrificed. So, uh, you don't want to be there unless you have to learn your lesson about the dagger and how to survive it and preparing your spells and doing all those uh, that all that pre-planning that this game really rewards,
1: yeah. um one of the cool things about this is that you see the scene in the temple from Zork three. It's um, part of the scenic Vista. And I don't think I'm getting, giving anything away that you can see this. I mean, I am a little bit, but not much, uh, you can see this sacrifice happen. And this scene is word for word inserted into Uh, the temple scene in in Enchanter. And I've seen, this goes back to what we were just talking about with humor um, and whether serious parts make sense. And, you know, yeah, they do. I think the seriousness is kind of on the background, just like it is in Zork 1, but it's there. Um, If you look for it, it's there. And what happens is you get, Krill is not only a bad warlock, he's apparently like the leader of a cult and he has all these minions surrounding him in this temple area um and he sacrifices you um you're like put on an altar and puts a knife in your heart and this took so long for me to figure out because it just never occurred to me even though it should have been obvious um that you can survive that scene um you do it with a spell that you find um
0: a spell to come back from an unnatural death okay really fun fact i was like oh can i survive (laughs) if i run out of bread can i use this spell which obviously that would be a natural death of hunger so but yes you can use it to survive the sacrifice
1: i think everybody on their first playthrough wants to figure out a way to survive running out of bread (laughs) you're not alone in that but anyway it's the osmu spell i think and you cast it and You go through the sacrifice and you're just still there with the dagger in your heart and you don't die and you pull the dagger out and nobody really notices because why would you be alive right so you just pull the dagger out and walk out of there um and again i've seen people say that this is like mad libs or in congress that they have this sacrifice with all the other stuff and I, i just i didn't feel that way um you know the the temple is kind of a locus of seriousness it's by the uh, endless stair that leads to Cl- krill's lair we have these spooky minions that you can hear from nearby rooms and to me that was always kind of a just like the boots and wishbringer which y'all heard me talk about mm. kind of a constant source of pressure trying to get in these areas and do what you need to do without being uh, caught by these minions um so to me that's that whole zone of the map is is very spooky
0: yeah i mean it makes sense to me if he's taking like the turtle says like are you going to help save this world from this evil warlock and it's like it would make sense for someone like that kind of a dictator figure to have a crew a mob a cult of followers that are out there doing his bidding
1: yeah absolutely and Because it's in the neighborhood, we must, another thing that happens, I'm not sure if it happens as you get more points or as the days go by, but the minions get more and more aggressive and they appear sooner and sooner. So along with the darkness is another way to ratchet up, um, the intensity. And of course, the last thing you need to do in the game is go to this winding staircase, which is at the center of the East hall, um, which means sort of ground zero for the minions to come and get you so um you you actually need a spell to um to get you know to be able to walk there without people jumping you and i I can't remember the name of the spell but it um it uh protects you from evil so you have to be protected by this late date in the game to walk to this stairway um and you know that leads us to you know one of the tricky things i should say this i should warn you if you uh, just don't mind being spoiled and you're listening even though you never played it um it's possible to use um one of these um powerful scrolls that you can't write in your book in the wrong place and lock yourself out of winning and you know you will figure it out eventually but um, you may lose a lot of progress um if you haven't kept a good map or good notes you might resent having to go back through things. Uh, fortunately, there's no royal puzzle or anything that actually you have to pay attention to while you redo it. Um, you pretty much by the numbers just get back to where you were, but it kind of stinks. But if you've done things right, you still have your Izuk scroll, and you can dispel the stairway.
0: And um, while we're in the stairway, you can fly, which is kind of cool. Um, and you there's a dragon that emerges at the end which i think is very climactic
1: yeah that seems pretty awesome now this is another thing people um ding because you have to learn through dying but you know once again i i saved before i used the isyuk spell so we're looking at 30 seconds of replay it just wasn't a big deal to me Um, but you do have to have the right spells when you go up there you have to be able to quench the flame of the dragon and then you get this like evil being with a big axe and i think two spells work on him this is just trivia um, both the vaxum which makes him friendly and the cleash spell that um turns him into a newt i prefer cliche just for balance because that way you've used every spell you found uh once at least once except for the Feel free spell which is a jokey fireworks thing um that you may appreciate more after you've um, read the dusty book and summoned the Im- implementers with ziffia just fun things to do in the game but then it's just you and krill and again the whole time that's going on he's saying these kind of classic cheesy villain dialogue which I enjoyed so much you know it's like, oh, I'm gonna shut you down man.
0: <laughs> you're just a worm you're yeah. you can't defeat me you but it's uh, the worm part is my my favorite um one and, and because you mentioned the newt uh, I never got to read a little bit about where you find that spell, which is in the swamp with the frogs and just really quickly I love that after you get it because you're talking to the them using the nitfall fall spell and um you overhear them discussing the politics of lily pad assignment um and the frogs are discussing the finer points of insect flavoring (laughs) so i just had to sneak that in before we close the episode
1: yeah the frogs are awesome so if you've done everything right it's time for you to cast the guncho spell (laughs)
0: gun show like a gun maybe uh, the gun shootout. show <laughs> um
1: the gun show yeah um and even after you cast it on him he's still acting like he's some kind of badass uh yeah you know, he's he's um kind of talking trash at you as he vanishes to the, a, void. the void yes you cast him into the void um and that's really the end of the game you get teleported out you know Boz is real happy to see you and you get um you become a member of the circle of enchanters and i can't remember whether this is ever said or not but i think the protagonist is probably the youngest um member ever of the circle of enchanters because they went directly from being a complete novice to you know the guy who took down krill uh so (laughs) it's a pretty jump pretty big jump for him in his career, which will follow through the rest of the Enchanter trilogy.
0: So a very wonderful ending uh, for a wonderful game. And it's kind of sad that we've already done this game now, but there will be many good games ahead. <laughs> but yes, Enchanter has a special place in our hearts.
1: Um, but I'm not sure that, there's a good game ahead in the near future for us as we'll be doing journey um, I've encountered in my travels I think two people who like it um, uh, they're both very smart people so I, I you know I respect their opinion uh, but I don't like it so much but you can you can share our pain uh, with the next episode of gold microphone which will be again about... Uh, Mark Blank's Journey, one of Infocom's uh, last releases.
0: All right. So with that, we hope you send us some mail. We will have our contact info in the show notes. And um, we look forward to spending time with you in our next episode.
1: Absolutely. We'll see you then. Thanks. Bye.